Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Back live here on our big broadcast. We are coast to coast. We are border to border on iHeartRadio today and also AMFM247.com. We've got a great guest with us today. Go ahead and give us a brief introduction on yourself, my friend. Tell us all about yourself. Yeah, sure thing. My name's uh, Henry. I, uh, let's see. Okay, I think we've got some audio sync issues here. Not, right. not, not, not a problem. I've got you. You're fine. You sound fantastic. Henry, tell us all about yourself, my friend. We're waiting with bated breath. Tell us, my man. Sure thing. So I, I, I was in the Air Force uh, for about 15 years uh, as a uh, as acquisitions officer or scientist. We uh, Air Force is unique in the sense that we're the only service that has military scientists. So working on different uh, technology programs. And uh, after that, I joined. Uh, you know, I went into the civilian world as a uh, you know into business, and uh, from there I moved out here to Paris. Uh, Paris, France, to work on uh, getting American startups, or just more broadly speaking, American businesses into Europe, and that, that's my uh, that's my main shtick, if you will, and it's really based on the kind of my experiences in the military, and uh, not not only as a military officer, but also as a NATO diplomat. You know, in NATO, the uh, the alliance. We have, you know, military officers, and of course, you have traditional diplomats in the civilian sense. But uh, the military, the NATO staff officers, are also uh, diplomats from the military sense, and working on what we call Paul Mill affairs or political military affairs, and that really kind of opened up my eye and my worldview, if you will, working with our NATO allies on, you know, fostering transatlantic uh, relationships, and you know, from there also more more broad view for not just transatlantic but also transpacific and now uh working on from the business side fostering those relations not just from a geopolitical or political standpoint but from a business or commercial standpoint fantastic fantastic we've got a great guest with us today he joins us live here on our big broadcast so henry tell us about your latest project uh sure so well, I mean, I have several, a bunch of different uh, projects here. Uh, from the from the commercial side, what we're working on here is there, there's a there's a huge big uh, emphasis on startups and just you know just technology ventures in Europe and particularly in France. And there's kind of a, a, a I would call it a political or I don't want to like. Uh, I say seismic shift because that sounds a little too sensationalist, but you know what the hell seismic shift, if you will, particularly with you know a Brexit going on, is that Europe is uh, trying to uh, f- find a way forward on what their identity is. It's kind of like how we are struggling in 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 America. Like what is it? What is our identity? And, you know, there's a lot of political infighting. Of you know, obviously, I mean, you you, know, you can tell me uh, with all the guests that you have on your show. But uh, you know the the core of that, what the the bickering is, 
at, at the core is, you know, what is you know, national identity? How are we as a nation going forward? And Europe, in, in a weird sense, you can consider them as a nation uh, themselves, where uh, obviously you have different countries, whether it's, you know, Slovakia or Germany or Finland, right, or Spain. But, uh, you know, they have their own, uh, you know, Euro- European identity that I would call supranational. And there, there are two main issues here for the Europeans that they've uh, that, that they're that they're coming to grips with. One is obviously Brexit and uh, that where Britain has always been a big, uh, you know, I would say uh, guide guider, if you will, of European affairs. And no matter what happens on the continent, you know, the UK has always been in that, you know, ever since the days of Napoleon, right, is that UK has always been there. So for over 200 years, guiding things along and moving things along so that Europe progresses in a specific way that's amicable to, you know, British uh, identity, if you will. Uh, I don't want to say identity politics, but, you know, that, that is not the, the British identity. And, you know, of course, for, for us as Americans, being, you know, the offspring of, of the Brits, you know, at, at least, uh, you know, politically or, you know, as, as Germans say, our zeitgeist, if you will, our, our national spirit and national ethos, you know, it comes from Britain itself. So the, the fact that Britain was guiding European affairs was good for us. And and actually it gave us a sense of freedom as Americans, you know, because, you know, we, we had that Monroe Doctrine, if you will, saying, hey, you know, Europe, you stay out of our affairs in, in the Western Hemisphere and, you uh, and we'll, you know, we'll stay out of yours and do that, and which was fine for us. We had that liberty because we knew that as long as you had the, uh, you know, um, I guess, social and economic liberalism. And I don't mean like liberal, like big L, like, you know, Democrats or left wing. I mean, like liberal as in like small L, right? Like yeah. the classical definition of liberalism, which, you know, we all are, whether you're Republican or Democrat, we're all small L liberals, right? Um, so anyway, so that. Uh, because of the British liberalism, again, small L liberalism, we had we were able to afford that ability to say, okay, we can, whatever happens to Europe, you know, that's okay, it's going to be fine. And then we in the United States, we can focus on our own affairs in the Western Hemisphere and deal with that. Of course, things have obviously changed since, you know, the days of uh, President Monroe, you know, and, and then mainly being two world wars. That is where we didn't want to get in there. We didn't want to uh, be interfere in European affairs. We were famously isolationist, and but then you know World War One happened, and they practically you know the, destroyed the entire European continent, and, and it came to us as you know the American saviors to come in and basically fix their mess. And then we had to bleed our own soldiers and treasury to uh, fix the European mess. And then afterwards, I said, okay, fine, you know we fixed your guys' mess. We're leaving Europe again, and we're going back to our own American affairs. Europe's, you stay out of our backyard, we'll stay out of yours. And, of course, you had the Roaring Twenties, and then, of course, the Great Depression, et cetera. And then, of course, through that, while the Great Depression was bad for us, we didn't have any, you know, personal infighting between us. Uh, you know, there, there was no, we already had our civil war, shall we say. So there was no need for like, another war within the United States, whereas with the Great Depression in Europe led to another Second World War. And again, famously, we said, hey, look, we don't want to be part of this. We don't want to be, you know, America, we're doing our own thing. Europe, you guys go ahead and have fun killing each other. Of course, eventually, they, you know, obviously, we know from history that, again, they destroyed themselves in the point where they had to ask for America's help again. And then we reluctantly, you know, well, historians can argue about that, whether it's reluctantly or not. But we, we eventually 
went back in and you know cleaned up the European mess. And of course, at that point, you know, we obviously had nuclear weapons, uh, you know, were discovered or invented, and that's a point where the nature of war has changed. And and at that point, we basically, as as a, as Americans, as a whole national psyche, if you will, we basically decided that look, we can't afford to stay out of European affairs. We need to be in there because now that we have nuclear weapons, we can't afford another war. Because if a war happens, you know, you know, I like to say, I don't know, you remember Crimson Tide, where Denzel Washington he says the true enemy of war. I, I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but he says like, you know, the true enemy of war now in the nuclear age is no longer the enemy, but it's war itself. Yes, so it, it's, and yes, it's, it's, it's like that. So, and even I think it was Churchill who said the whole point of NATO is to keep the you know the Russians out, the you know the Germans down, but most importantly, but the Americans in. Right? He wanted. He wanted America, you know, in European affairs, and we've we've kept that along to even to this day, where we're seen as the world policeman. Now, a lot of people can argue back and forth about whether that's a good or bad thing, but essentially, you know, that's what we are. We're we're the guarantors of, uh, you know, global peace, uh, if you will, or global security, I should say, because obviously, I mean, there's there's of course minor wars here and there, and I'm sure we can have. Definitely have discussions about whether the Iraq war was good, you know, Afghanistan or, you know, meddling, you know, saber rattling with Ukraine or China. You know, sure, those are all valid debates that we can have. But at the core essence is that we as America, we are, you know, we are the guarantors of global security. And that's a, that's a huge responsibility that's never existed before in, you know, in the history of humanity. So uh, now and that that was all fine because we can we can focus on Europe because we had Britain there. But with Brexit leaving, or see with Brexit happening and Britain leaving, we no longer had our you know foot in the door through them, right? Where we're basically outsiders. Even Europeans were like asking, like you know, why the hell do we even speak English anymore with Brexit? Because you know the only uh, English-speaking country is uh, you know is out of the European Union. Of course, that's a ridiculous statement because English is, you know, is the de facto lingua franca, you know, the the language of, uh, you know, business and commerce and at this point diplomacy as well. But, you know, that's besides the point. And then, of course, after, I mean, Britain is just one aspect of it. Then you also have Germany and Germany has always been a powerhouse since, you know, the days of Prussia, you know, Frederick, even before that, you know, Frederick the Great and whatnot. But the, uh, the point is, Germany has always been a big, uh, you know, influencer within within Europe. And even to this date, uh, with up until recently with Chancellor Merkel, who's the, uh, the former head of state of Germany, she basically was the, you know, the strong arm. Well, I don't say strong arm because that has a negative connotation, but she was the big... Uh, you know, influence within continental Europe and, and especially within the European Union. And one thing is, you know, I, I like to you know, say is that, you know, we're, we're still living under the uh, the shadow of the Nazi regime, where in the sense that, yes, we've defeated, obviously we've defeated Nazism and, you know, and no, that was all well and good. But the, the shadow of that, uh, of, of that time period still remains in the sense that, not that Nazis are a threat. Well, I mean, you can ask people about like neo-Nazis and everything like that, and someone would say, yes, it's still a threat. I don't mean that. I mean more of like a, from a geopolitical standpoint, you know, fascism or, you know, Nazism is no longer a threat, but the fact that the, the memory of fascism is still a threat in the sense that the Germans still live under that shadow and to the point where their politics now is guided by the sense that, hey, look, we were, whether for, you know, ill or for good, 
uh, because you know World War One, it's debatable whether the Germans were actually even the bad guys. But whether for ill or for good, the Germans uh, were the cause of mass destruction in two you know giant wars, you know world wars within Europe. So that that uh, hangs over their head in in their in their national politics, where they say, "Hey, look, we don't want to be." In, involved with any other wars because we've already been the bad guys twice. We don't want to be bad guys a third time. And because of that, not they don't just step back like, you know, kind of like Switzerland or Austria saying, hey, look, we're going to be neutral, but it's more of like, a, it's more of an antagonistic force where they're saying, hey, look, not only do we not want to be in any wars, but we're going to actively prevent any uh, conflict from happening, which on the surface obviously sounds good. But when you're talking about saber rattling or bad faith actors, which is kind of like what we're dealing right now with uh, Russia, Germany becomes an in, uh, impediment to, uh, I would say, regional or you know transatlantic security, if you will. And um, and, and Merkel has always been being I mean, Angela Merkel being the dominant figure within European affairs, not only. Did she have this uh, the, uh, this philosophy for the Germans? But by by nature, being the fact of being head of not only being being head of Germany, but by the, being the de facto head of the European Union or uh, culturally head of the continental Europe, she basically guided the European continent to be anti-conflict right and anti-conflict doesn't necessarily mean peace because again when you have bad faith actors like we have in the case with russia uh you can't just you know take the quote you know high road or as like hillary clinton used to say oh when we go low you know we'll go high or when they go low we'll go high it, it doesn't it doesn't really work with international geopolitics and now now that germany or excuse me now that angela merkel has left has retired you know, there's a vacuum within continental Europe. And originally, it was like, okay, well, that would be fine because we still have Britain there and everything's good to go. But, of course, with Brexit, you know, the Brits are not there anymore. So what right now what we're seeing is France is uh, starting to, uh, you know, take that mantle on. And France has, a, uh, you know, doesn't is not under this, sh you know, like they call the shadow of Nazism, right? Where they say, oh, we can't afford to be, be, you know, look like the bad guys for the third time. For them, it's actually the opposite. They're like, hey, you know, they've always... France has always been a kind of, a, uh, can I say, a jovial thorn in the side of the United States, where originally, you know, we were united after World War II with NATO. And then, of course, Charles de Gaulle said, hey, no, we want France needs to be its own, like, you know, third pillar of security where we're aligned with the West, but we're going to do our own thing. You know, and uh, and that's still much that's still uh, pervasive to this day. But with uh, France now trying to be uh, the head, you know, the trying to gain that mantle of, you know, European hegemony, they, uh, and with their new president, president, well, it's not new anymore, he's actually running for a second term, but President Macron, Emmanuel Macron, he's kind of like their JFK, he's like a really young, you know, dynamic guy. Of course, you, you wouldn't be able to tell from the polls here, because in France, they, they always hate their politicians. So like, if a French president has 20% approval rating, that's actually like a really good thing because they always have crap for approval ratings for their politicians. But either way, you know, they're, the, France is trying to move ahead forward uh, with, uh, you know, coalescing some sort of hegemony under the French umbrella. And I feel as us as Americans, if we want to, uh, you know, we have, we have to understand why are we the world's policemen, you know, and we have to go back to those days of World War I, World War II, where it's actually, hey, look, Americans, we don't want to actually be in other people's affairs. It's just we're forced to do it because if we're not there, there's going to be fighting, right? 
And as much as like the saber, saber rattling and everything going on here, Russia would have invaded Ukraine a long time ago. But it's because of the threat of American intervention that at least there's a pause. Now, of course, we don't know what's going to happen within the next couple of weeks or months. But either way, countries or other bad faith actors are always, you know, they give themselves pause because of, you know, the threat of American interventionism. And, you know, and as Americans, you know, obviously, most of us would say that's that's a good thing. You know, the, you know, peace or, you know, war effects aside. And uh, there, there's this there's this uh, concept in, in, in military schools uh, called DIME, which are the four instruments of national power. And DIME stands for diplomacy, uh, intelligence or information, if you will, uh, military and, and economics. And basically, the, the standpoint here is that uh, a nation has to use all four aspects of DIME. So all, all four instruments of national power to be effective on the world stage. And I feel like uh, over the past 40-ish or so years, we've kind of forgotten that in, in, the, in the sense that we've mostly been focusing on the M part of DIME, which is the military aspect, and we've lost uh, uh, particularly, like, definitely the, the D, the, you know, the diplomacy, and, and, and also the economic part. Now, you know, say what you will about the past couple of, you know, pre- uh, you know, past four years or so, but from an economic standpoint, you know, uh, leaving the TPP or uh, or or even um, you know loosening our economic ties with the European Union, from an economic standpoint, that is a uh, you know, that's been a terrible thing for us as Americans as using our influence. Like our our main influence as a country is not actually the military; it's our economic prowess. To the point that even when you look at the U.S. Constitution, we've always been, you know, everyone likes to say, like, oh, people debate whether you know, we were, you know, a Christian nation or a deist nation or a nation of uh, the, the, the Enlightenment. But really, our, our main thing is our, our, we are a nation of free trade. And it's, it's been enshrined in our Constitution. We could look like where the Constitution even mandates a U.S. Navy, like the United States shall uh, have, have a Navy to facilitate you know, free international trade, whereas the army famously is not actually enshrined in the Constitution so that every, every time, uh, you know, the defense authorization bill has to come up, Congress actually has to reauthorize the existence of a standing army, which, of course, makes sense back when, you know, during our you know, founding fathers, they, they were deathly afraid of a standing army. That's why you know, we have even like, you know, things like the Third Amendment, which today the Third Amendment is basically useless Right. No one cares about quartering soldiers. But back then, those days, a standing army was a big threat to the point to say, hey, we don't even want a standing army. Of course, now now that's relevant because, you know, we, we obviously we, we, we do have a standing army and it's just, um, you know. A formality that we reauthorize the army. But the point here is our, our national psyche, if you will, has always been about free international trade. Uh, which is why the Navy is always has always been the most uh, you know important uh, arm of or branch of the military. And I say this as an Air Force guy, right? You know, so Air Force we come from the Army. So you know, obviously I'm, I'm much closer to the Army and obviously the Air Force. But even I have to admit, you know, based on history, the Navy is essentially what is. Uh, if we had to put a face on the U.S. military, or you know, for Uncle Sam, it would be the U.S. Navy. Because, and again, it's not because anything was so great about the Navy, although they are great. It's it's about our need for the flow of international free trade, and that free trade is essential for our 
interactions with Europe. Uh, at least I believe that. And of course, with you know, with Brexit being you know gone, you know, with Brexit happening, and we don't have our 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 best trade partner within Europe being Britain, no longer there within continental Europe. If we want to ensure the uh, the relative stability, if you will, or or our influence within Europe, we need to you know interject ourselves within their economy. And 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 nowadays, like right now. I mean, the reason why I'm here, for example, uh, obviously Americans, we don't have any visa rights to stay in Europe, right? Other than for, you know, a tourist has like 90 days, but they have a special program where they're inviting uh, American entrepreneurs and businessmen to settle in, particularly in France, but also in other other countries. There's like, for example, DAFT in in the Netherlands, the Dutch-American Friendship Treaty, which is a similar thing. Uh, I think Portugal has another thing like the Golden Visa Program, but that's more of a global thing. But regardless, for specifically for Americans, you have France and the Netherlands, really big, and they, they recognize the the uh, the abilities of us as Americans and and our you know business economic prowess. And I believe that we need to have uh, Americans uh, in Europe cultivating that, much like we used to have, you know. American diplomats throughout the world. I mean, we still do that, but not to the same uh, pointed effect as we used to. And uh, that that's essentially what I'm working on here is that cultivating those transatlantic relationships. But, you know, th- from that, you know, obviously we have a lot of talks and, you know, the, the Europeans, they love to talk and they're like very philosophical. And, you know, we, we talk about different things like, you know, trade history or, you know, geopolitics, what's going on in the world, especially nowadays with Russia. You know, there's a lot of talk about that. So, you know, there, there's a lot of these things that we, we would discuss and debate and argue. And there, there's, there's definitely the European mindset, which is very interesting to hear. But, you know, as Americans, we need to be there on the ground to actually, you know, debate them and say, hey, look, this is the American perspective. It's not just about us being, you know, saber rattling war mongrels. We're here to, uh, you know, help with and guarantee the security of, you know, your continents, right? And yeah, and so I started coalescing that into a podcast and uh, and start, you know, as my friends would say, pontificating about the, you know, these different aspects. Uh, so that's that, that's essentially where uh, you know where where we are, what we're doing with uh fantastic fantastic we have got a uh, great guest with us today henry d saint simon he's a u.s air force veteran he has an incredible new podcast it's available at codbsm.com come on don't bullshit me and uh henry d saint with us today here on our big broadcast well um as we wrap up here with you my friend um what's been the response to the podcast, what 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 have, what, what have people been saying about this this program? Sure, I, it gives people a reason to pause, and that that's the main thing here. I I, I try to I definitely try to avoid uh, politics from the uh, you know political infighting sense, and and talk more about uh, our you know the the underlying like I said here the underlying psyche of us as Americans and what that means for current policies. So it, it doesn't matter, like for me, it doesn't matter if you're, uh, you, should, like, you shouldn't say like you're a Republican or a Democrat or a conservative or a liberal, because that automatically assigns you a label that even if you say, oh, I'm better than that, I can trick my brain. The thing is, you know, there have been psychological studies on this. As soon as you attach a label to yourself, 
uh, or someone or even worse, someone attaches a label to you, then you you start to think through that lens. You know, it's called like anchoring. And by doing that, it, it makes you it doesn't make you it doesn't make you uh, reticent to new uh, to new ideas or or to uh, or even or, or even to conflicting ideas. Fantastic. So the, the best thing that I show is that the, the, the underlying premise here is that we are Americans and you should only look at things through as the lens of American. Like, you know, the, the standard trope here is that we have to look at both sides, right? But the thing is, you have to finish that sentence. Not you have to look at both sides. It's both sides of the issue. And right now, and then, you know, again, to use a Navy parlance terms, uh, a ship in the open water does not use an anchor and it floats with the current. Whereas a ship close to land has to drop an anchor, and that anchor keeps the boat uh, or, or the ship grounded in, in a sense. And what what we do now, I, I hesitate to call them news channels because, in my my opinion, they're more like political porn, right? Uh, whether it's you know MSNBC or Fox News or CNN, at this point, I consider them political porn. And uh, but. When we look at things, it's not about looking. You, you can't say, "Oh, we have to look at different uh, both sides," because as if you don't have an underlying, you know, grounding of what your ideals are as an American or whatever. Even if it's even if you're saying you're a conservative or liberal, you have to have an underlying core value. And then from there, only from that issue can you look. Should you look at both sides? But if you just say both sides in the ethereal sense, well, that's what we call, you know, the Overton shift. Of the internet, where you, as if you're you're dictated, you don't respond to some to uh, an adversary or an opponent, but you actually react to them in the sense that they can go keep going further and further and further to a specific uh, spectrum, and you know like the, like it's kind of like a like a crude joke, basically saying. Uh, you know, when you look at the both sides of Stalin, it's like, oh, I want to execute and exterminate. Uh, you know, all the peasants will say, oh, well, let's get both sides. Well, and all of a sudden meet in the midway. Okay, so maybe we should exterminate half the peasants, right? It doesn't. So when you look at that, you can't, the both sides, it doesn't really work. You have to come from a specific issue saying, what, you know, what, what do we as Americans stand for and what is actually important to us? And only from there, from that issue, do you look at both sides so you don't get, you know, veer off on the specific currents of political turmoil. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you making time for us today. Thanks for coming on and chatting with us, my friend. This has been a fantastic conversation, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. There he goes. And uh, interesting fellow. Go over and check him out right now. He is fantastic. Come on up, boss. Hit me. And we will talk to you soon here. <laughs> On our big program.